Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Have you experienced a really pivotal moment in your life, something that you can kind of bring back to mind and go, man, this was just a turning point for me or something that was really powerful, really important. Uh, when you think about those just pivotal moments in your life, maybe for some of you, it was like, I don't know, turning 21 years old and you're kind of like, oh, this feels big to me, like I just hit 21. Or maybe for some of you, it was like, I just hit 40. And that was a big one, right? It was like, that's the pivotal moment. And some of you are like, yeah, 40, whatever. I'm like in my later years, right? Like I've got other pivotal things that have coming up in my life. And so maybe you've been there. Uh, maybe you think about like a first job and you're just like, man, I got that first job out of college, the experience that I've been looking for. Or if that wasn't your big thing, maybe it was the dream job. Like I got the dream job. I got the new thing that was going to set me on my career path and really lead me where I wanted to be in life. For others of you, maybe it was getting married and you're like, I can remember standing at that altar with my spouse and being in that place and just feeling like this is the turning point. This is a pivotal moment in my life. Or it could be when you held your first child. You're like, this seems huge. Like this is a life-changing moment. I am just in this pivotal time, pivotal moment of my life. And so maybe you've been in those places before. For a lot of us, I would hope we would say that a pivotal moment in our life was when we followed Jesus. When we said embracing Jesus as Savior and having him as my Lord in my life and making him the God of my life and being a disciple of his, that is the pivotal moment. That's the transition point of everything else that's taking place in my life. And so in having those kind of thoughts and ideas, Jesus is going to have a moment today with his disciples that is a pivotal moment in his ministry. And that's what we're going to see in Mark chapter 8 is that Jesus takes his disciples to a place and he has this extremely important announcement or, or conversation with his disciples about something that's a pivotal moment, a life-changing moment in his ministry. And so here's what we find in Mark. In Mark's gospel, it's broken up into 16 chapters. Now, Mark didn't write it that way. We kind of added the chapters and verses later. But this is dead center in the gospel of Mark. When you get to Mark chapter 8 and in the middle of Mark chapter 8, so there's 16 chapters, the middle of Mark 8, Mark puts this event right in the middle of his gospel. And he wants us to see that this is a turning point. This is a pivotal moment. For the first parts of Mark in the first eight chapters, Mark's going to cover about three years of Jesus' life. In the last eight chapters, Mark's going to cover about a month in Jesus' life. And specifically, he's going to focus on the last week of Jesus. So Mark has been moving super fast through his gospel to get us to this place. And then he's going to change gears and he's going to focus in deeply on Jesus. Because it's at this place that Jesus starts to move from the most northern part of Israel to Jerusalem, where he's going to go to the cross. And so Mark is letting us know this is an extremely important place. And so here's where I want us to see where we find this story today. We're in a place called Caesarea Philippi. That's in the northernmost part of Israel. Uh, when I was in Israel, I don't know if I told you guys that or not. Uh, when I was in Israel, that's just going to be the recurring joke and theme, okay? Uh, when I was there, I uh, actually got pulled in my uh, leaving to, in the airport to fly home. I got pulled by security out of the line. 
And they were like, hey, we want to take you through a security screening. Uh, this is for training purposes for our employee. Would you be willing to do it? And I was like, I don't feel like I have a choice but to do it, so I guess I'm going to do it. And so I got grilled for about 45 minutes by this girl who was like learning to be I don't know, an interrogator. And so she's at the airport and she is just grilling me and I'm sweating and I'm like, this doesn't feel like a training exercise. Maybe for you it is. For me, this feels super real. I've watched movies. I know I'm never going to get out of this country, right? Like I am not ever leaving Israel and I'm going to be locked up somewhere and I just know. And they're asking me questions about like, who are you here with and who's your group leader? And I was like, I'm not telling you the name of my group leader because are you guys going to get him too? Like, is this going to be a thing? Like, I don't know what's going on here. And so I did it. But after all of that, uh, they finished and they escorted me through security and gave me a free clearance pass onto my, my boarding gate. But as we're walking, this girl escorted me and I said, all right, I gotta, you asked me a thousand questions. I get one. And she went, what is it? And I said, one of my favorite places I went in Israel was a place that we call Caesarea Philippi. How do you say it? And she went, we say it Caesarea. And I was like, well, what do you know? You just live here. That's wrong. We're going to call it Caesarea, right? Uh, and so all my life I've been calling it Caesarea Philippi. And she goes, it's Caesarea Philippi. So today it's sometimes I might say Caesarea and at other times I might say Caesarea. And you're just going to have to be okay with that because I'm trying to retrain my brain to think about this place as Caesarea. But here's what you would find at Caesarea Philippi. It was a place of, uh, of religious expression and worship, especially to the gods. When the Greeks came to this location, they set up a, a, a temple to the god uh, of Zeus and also to the god Pan. Uh, when the Romans came in, uh, Herod the Great took this place and built a temple to Caesar and had Caesar worship that was taking place here. All right, uh, so when you get into these different moments, you see, and you can see the temples that were constructed here. This is a rendering of what the area might have looked like, but there were worship of these gods that were going on all over this place. And so with the Greek rulers, um, when Caesar Augustus and his temple had was set up there, after Herod the Great died, his son Philip became the tetrarch of the area, the, the new Herod of the area, and he renamed it. He made this area his capital city, and so it became known as Caesarea Philippi after Philip. Herod Philip. All right, so that's kind of the setting. And what you have taking place here is worship to all of these gods. And so what would take place uh, for the, the Romans, especially if they were worshiping the god Pan, and they would come here. Uh, Pan was a god of fertility for the ground and for the earth, so they would have good bumper crops. And so they would worship him, and they would make sacrifices to him. Inside of the temple to the left, you can kind of see at the back of the temple, and I'll show you a different picture later, there's a large cave that's there. And inside of that cave, they would throw goats. Pan was half man, half goat. All right, that was who Pan was, the god Pan. And so they would throw goats into this river that was flowing in this cave. And if the goat survived the fall and the throw, then they would say that Pan had rejected the sacrifice. So the next thing they would do is they would throw a child into that river. So this is a terrible place of idol worship, right? Like this is an, uh, a, a place that's steeped in just demonic activity. And so when Jesus takes his disciples here, it's intentional because of all the worship that's taking place, Jesus wants to have a conversation with his disciples that's a pivotal turning point conversation with him. And so here's what we're going to read this morning. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. Jesus asks two questions. With all these gods being worshipped in this area, guys, I've brought you here, the northernmost part of Israel. All of these gods, look at the worship that's taking place. Here are the questions that I have. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, 
who do people say I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him, right? So the first question is this, Jesus asked, hey, who do people say that I am? Right? Apparently, Jesus didn't have Google. He couldn't Google his name and see what the image results came up as. And he didn't have Yelp reviews after the feeding of the 5,000. Well, what did people think about that? And like, was the food good? Like, he didn't have any of that. So he goes, you guys, when we're with the crowds and we're walking around, you're constantly interacting with these people. When you hear them talking about me, when you hear them talking about my ministry, who are the people saying that I am? And the disciples go, well, here's what we're hearing. Some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah. Some people say one of the prophets. And Jesus has this moment where he goes, man, they are in prestigious company. Jesus is being kept in prestigious company. Really, like Moses, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, Jeremiah. Like these are big time names in Israel. And Jesus is being compared to all of them. And yet, Jesus goes, they're not taking it far enough. That's nice that they're holding me in such prestigious company. But that's not far enough. So then he turns the question. And he goes, what about you guys? What about you guys? Because the crowds see Jesus, and they've done the same thing that we do a lot of time. They put Jesus on this pedestal, and they go, man, you're a really moral teacher. You're a miracle worker. You're a philosopher who's got all the the answers to life's hardest questions. You're an incredible teacher. Like People love to hear you teach. They remember the stories that you tell. You embrace and and interact with crowds in ways that are just incredible. All of these things, and they're in this place. Some people might go, well, you're a prophetic voice. Others might say, well, you're a a social justice warrior. You're always bringing people up and, and giving them a platform, and you're just working in this way. And they say the same things about Jesus that people in our day and time say about him now. And yet, it's not far enough. It's not the full answer to the question. And so Jesus then turns the question to his disciples and goes, okay, that's great that that's what the crowds say. You guys have been with me now for a long time. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, being the guy that always has to speak first and kind of is impetuous and just jumps into conversations, Peter goes, ooh, ooh, I know this one, right? It's like, you are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. Matthew actually gives us another look at this because in this personal confession, you're the Messiah. Matthew's gospel records another part of this conversation. It says, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God, right? Like Peter has learned that Jesus is more than anyone ever thought. He isn't just a moral teacher or a worker of miracles. He's not a, a politician. He's not a social justice worker. He is God in flesh, And he goes, you are the Messiah. You are the son of God. He is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And if you're taking notes this morning, here's the first thing that I want you to see. What we believe about Jesus is the most important belief we hold. What you believe about Jesus is the most important belief that you hold. And so Peter is giving this declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. So for us, this is what we have to come around to. What we believe about Jesus is the most important belief that we hold. Not our economic beliefs, not our political beliefs, not our educational beliefs, not our social beliefs. What we believe about Jesus is the most important belief that we hold. And here's why, the second part of this. Your belief about Jesus will guide all of your other beliefs. So to the extent that your beliefs about Jesus are wrong, 
your other beliefs in life are going to be wrong. To the extent that your beliefs about Jesus are right and biblical and founded in truth and based on God's revelation, then your other beliefs in, in life are going to be true. And so we have to come around to this place where we answer this question, who is Jesus? And that's why the next part of the conversation is so important as we read the Gospels. We're going to see two aspects of this conversation. One from Mark's recollection, which Mark gets most of his source material from Peter, who is an eyewitness. Peter's the one happening here, talking to Jesus. And then the other one from Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's also here. He's remembering this event as it unfolds. And so Mark's perspective and Matthew's perspective... Matthew says Peter makes this bold declaration, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus gives them this huge confirmation. So here's from Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, another tie-in back to Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus has brought them, this pit that they used to throw goats into and children into for sacrifices. Guess what that pit was known as? It's known as the gates of hell. It was thought to be a bottomless pit. And so Jesus has brought his disciples here, and Peter makes this declaration. He goes, blessed are you, Peter. You have not been shown this by human understanding, but by my Father who's given you this knowledge. And this confession is going to be what the church of my, of the, my church is going to be built on. And this confession is going to make everything move forward. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. So some people believe when they read this, and there are different thoughts about it uh, from different religious aspects, but some people would say, Jesus is telling Peter, hey, you're the rock that all of this stuff is going to be built on. Peter, you're the rock that the church is going to be built on. That's not exactly what Jesus is saying here. I want you to see how this works in the Greek because there's two words that are at play here. In the Greek, it reads like this. You are Petros, right? You are the rock. You are rock. You are Petros. And on this Petra, I will build my church. Now, here's what those two words mean. Petros means detached but large fragment. So he goes, you are Petros. You are a detached but a large fragment. You're a big part of this, Peter. Like, you're going to have leadership in the church. You're a big part of what's going on. But here's what I want you to know. Petra means massive living rock. Because you're Peter. But on this massive living rock, my church is going to be built. It's going to be built on me, and it's going to be built on the confession of what people say about me. And so, Peter, when you make the declaration, when you make the confession, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, Jesus goes, that's the same declaration and the same confession that people in 2024 are going to be making about me. In 2023, are going to be making about me. In 2025, are going to be making about me. If the Lord doesn't come until 2030, that's what people are going to be making about me. Like this declaration, you are the Messiah, you're the Son of God. When people make that declaration, I'll build my church on that. And the gates of hell can't prevail against it. Now, here's what you would find if you went back to Caesarea Philippi today. And I think we have a picture of this that I'm going to show you. The temples are gone. The cave just exists. All of the worship to Zeus, all of the worship of Pan, all of the worship of the Caesars, it has ceased. The gate of hell that everybody thought was a bottomless pit that literally led to the underworld, it's been filled in. <laughs> it wasn't bottomless. It wasn't endless. It didn't go anywhere. But today, what's taking place? The worship of those gods has stopped. 
But the worship of Jesus continues on. The church presses forward. The gates of hell cannot stand against it. This declaration that Peter made, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, and Jesus goes, yes, and on that faith, on that declaration, the gates of hell won't stand against it. And then Jesus does something that's really interesting that we're going to see in just a minute. But let me ask you this question first. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's come to take away our sins. When we're thinking about this Palm Sunday and Jesus' declaration of moving into Jerusalem to bring about his last week of life, the Passion Week, the Holy Week, and he's going to go to the cross by this Friday. And it's that cross, it's the other pivotal moment of Jesus' ministry of going, you have to declare that I'm the Christ, the Son of God. And you have to look at my life and my death and my resurrection. And you have to place your life and your faith in me if you're going to follow me. And so Jesus asks us that same question today. What are your beliefs about who he is? And it's why we have to know who Jesus is. False belief in the church made a mess of things early on. Uh, If you go back and study Acts, and you read early church history, here's what you're going to find. The Jewish people thought that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. That's all he came to be. He's the Jewish Messiah. Jesus came to bring and make things right for the Jews. And even after his life, death, and resurrection, they still held on to that really tightly. And later, as Paul starts going and Peter starts going to Gentile areas and sharing the gospel, and people start following Jesus who are Gentiles, the Jews are going, wait, this is crazy. We didn't think that could happen. Like, even the Gentiles are placing their faith in the Jewish Messiah? Okay, well, that's fine then, but here's what we need them to do. They need to become Jewish in order to be followers of the Jewish Messiah. So they need to embrace the dietary laws. They need to be circumcised if they're men. They need to, to take on Jewish customs. They need to keep the, the meals and all the different things that the Jews do. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, that's fine, but become Jewish as well. And the apostles had to fight against that way of thinking because Jesus didn't just come to be the Jewish Messiah. He came to be the Messiah of the world. And so what we see early in the church is if you have wrong beliefs about Jesus, it messes everything up. Even the early Christians had to get this changed in their mind to think differently about who Jesus was and what he had come to do. And so for us, even 2,000 years later, we're still answering this question. And these false beliefs about Jesus cause a lot of problems even in our lives. So that's why it's important for us to see Jesus' reaction to Peter in Mark's gospel. Matthew and Mark, again, giving a little bit of varying accounts of what's going on. When Peter makes this declaration, you're the Messiah... The next words out of Jesus' mouth come in verse 30. It says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Isn't that crazy? Like, we see this all the time. Jesus will do something, he'll be like, don't tell anybody. Like, I just healed you, I cast demons out of you, don't tell anybody. Like, I just gave you your sight back, don't let anybody know about that. And like, how are we supposed to keep that a secret, right? And Peter's going, what do you mean don't tell anybody? And Jesus is going, listen, you guys still have an incomplete understanding of who I am. When you say, Peter, that I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, that still doesn't make sense to you of what kind of Messiah I've come to be. You still see me as going next month to Jerusalem for the Passover to take care of Rome and to give the Jewish people their kingdom back. And you're so wrapped up in this message of empire and building a kingdom for the Israelites and for the Jewish people that you're missing the bigger picture that I've come to save the world. So Peter, it's great that you've made this declaration and you're absolutely right, but don't tell anybody. 
Because if you do, you're going to give them the wrong information. Right? And so when we see this, we understand that Jesus has a bigger moment on his mind. It's not this declaration. It's his cross. And so we're waiting for that moment to come, and we're going to be looking at that next week. But then we go on and we read this in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. From this moment, Jesus starts to change the direction of the conversation. This is that pivotal moment of going, all right, Messiah, you figured it out. Now let's talk about what that means. And here's what Jesus says. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man himself, the Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and then after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. All right, now here's what I want us to see when we read this passage. First and foremost, this is the first time that Jesus has talked openly about dying. Right? He's just said, yes, I'm the Messiah. And they're like, yes, the Messiah. That's what we've been waiting for. That's what we're talking about. The Messiah is going to come and get rid of Rome. And he goes, now let me talk to you about what the Messiah is about. Four things I need you to know. I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and the elders. Messiah is going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to die. But I'm going to come back to life again. There are four things that must happen in the life of the Messiah. Peter, you want to know what the Messiah is about? The Messiah has to suffer. The Messiah is going to be rejected. The Messiah is going to die. And the Messiah is going to come back to life again. And all the disciples are hearing this for the first time and going, no, no, like, that's not Messiah. That's not what we're talking about. What's the next thing we see from Peter? Peter pulls Jesus aside and does what? Rebukes him. Can you imagine that conversation, how that went down? Can you imagine being like, Jesus, I rebuke you, right? It's like, no, you can't talk like this. Like Peter kind of goes into the mode like a politician, and he's the chief of staff. And he's like, no, 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 Passover's coming. You're, you've got your stump speech all wrong. We've got to get that fixed because we're going to Jerusalem where you're going to have a chance to make your pitch to become king. We're going to elect you. We're going to put you on the pedestal. You're going to be the guy. And right now, you're talking out of your mind, Jesus. Like, you're not going to suffer. They're not going to reject you. They're going to embrace you. You're the Messiah. You can't die. What are you talking about, Jesus? You stop that right now. Like you cannot talk like that. And Peter just has in mind, people aren't going to elect you. You can't talk like that and get a throne. Jesus is like, you got the wrong idea, Peter. That's not what's taking place here. And Jesus quickly puts an end to that kind of talk. When you look at verse 33, it says, but Jesus turned and he looked at his disciples. Can you imagine the disciples eyes when Peter rebukes Jesus? And they're like, oh, what? What did Peter just say? What did he do? Did we all get to rebuke Jesus? And he's like, oh, we got to put a stop to this right now, right? And so here's what he says. Jesus looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, has anybody ever called you Satan to your face before? It's not a good place to be, right? When somebody looks at you and goes, you are the devil of hell, like that is not good. And Jesus is going, I want you to understand something. The way you're talking right now, that's not inspired by God's kingdom. That's not God's voice. That's the voice of the enemy. That's Satan coming out of you, Peter. That is a mindset that is so far removed from the kingdom of God that you sound like the enemy of God. And so, Peter, you've got to stop that kind of talk right now. That's not what we're about. I've got to be rejected. 
I've got to suffer. I'm going to die. But I'm going to come to life again. And what Jesus does with his disciples from this point forward is he changes the conversation. He is going, more often than not, he's going to bring the conversation back around to these things. In fact, two more times on their way, leaving the northern part of Israel and walking to Jerusalem, he's going to have this conversation with his disciples. The Son of Man has to die, and he's going to come back to life again. And they just don't get it. They're not tracking with him. And so for us, what I want us to see today as we read this next passage, I want us to understand this, and I'm going to read this to us, and then I'm going to give us a call to action, and I want to close our service time up in just a minute by by us taking communion. But here's what we see when we read the next passage, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must first deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And so here's what I want us to see. Jesus tells the crowd and his disciples, the cross is not just for me. The cross is for you as well. He's letting them know, I'm the king. And I've brought you to this cave to show you what worship of other kings looks like and other gods looks like, and that's not the kind of king I am. We're going to leave this cave, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to take up a cross. And here's what I need you to know. If you want to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross as well. If anyone wants to come and follow me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow. If you want to gain your life, you lose it. Anyone who loses their life gains it. Like everything Jesus starts talking about is this kingdom philosophy, and it's all upside down to what we might normally think. Like he is putting things in such a different perspective. You want to be my disciple? You deny yourself. Who does that? Everything in our world is about me getting more for myself. He goes, no, no, you deny yourself. You put yourself last. You want to be my disciple? Don't save your life. Lose it. And in doing so, you'll save it. What if you get everything in the world? That it, what if you get everything the world offers, but you lose your soul? What have you gained? He's going, you've got nothing at the end of that. And so Jesus calls them to something different. And then finally, he says, he asks, will we be ashamed of Jesus? Or will we make him famous and take a public stand for him? And so this morning, as we close this up, I'm going to tell you one last story. And then we're going to take communion together. We're going to celebrate this remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. That the kind of king he is is a king who lays down his life to give us life. But this declaration is what it's all about. Who do you say Jesus is? Church history tells us that in the early 1900s, 1900, 1901, 1902, revivals were sweeping across England 
pastors were having great success in preaching the gospel and seeing people come to faith in Jesus and lives were being changed and it seemed like everywhere that, that churches were meeting, the gospel was spreading and revival was just moving. And so pastors started saying, we got to go to other regions and we got to carry this flame of revival. We want people to know Jesus. And so they started spreading out to other areas around England and Europe. And, and one of the places that they tried to go into was Wales. And in Wales, the pastors there were just being met with unrepentant hearts. There weren't any responses really to Jesus. They were preaching. They were having revival services. They were doing all these things and, and trying to lead people to know who Jesus was and be changed by Jesus. And, and nothing was happening. Like it was just preaching your heart out and nobody ever responding. And that was happening week after week. And about a month after these revival services that one specific pastor held, there was a young girl. She was 19 years old. Her name was Flory Evans. And Flory one night just followed the pastor home after church. Just kind of at a distance. He's walking home and she just kind of is walking behind him following along. And she gets to his house and he goes inside and she's kind of back at a distance. And for about half an hour, history tells us she just walked around outside of his house, just pacing outside of his house. Should I go and knock on his door? Should I talk to him? What do I need to do? And, and finally, after about half an hour, she worked up the courage to go and she knocked on his door and, and she said, what am I supposed to do about Jesus? And the pastor's answer was this, that you need to go home, acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, and submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So that's what Flory did. She went home, and for a week, she locked herself in her house. And she just prayed. Said, God, would you just show me who you are? Reveal to me what the Spirit of God wants to do in my life. And somewhere in that week, Flory Evans gave her life to Jesus. And she said, I'm going to embrace him. He's going to be mine. At the end of that week, after she had spent that time in prayer, she went back to church and the pastor was leading just a small gathering with some teenagers there in the community. And they were sitting in a circle around. It wasn't a church service. It was just a teenage gathering, maybe like a youth group that we would have today. And the pastor looks at these teenagers and he goes, hey, who do you say that Jesus is? And one kid speaks up and goes, he's the Messiah. He's the son of God. And the pastor goes, that's what the Bible says, and that's right. But to you personally, who is Jesus to you? And nobody answered. And after a long pause, Flory Evans stood up, and she said, if no one else will, I'll say it. Jesus is my Savior, and I love him with all my heart. And historians tell us that from that moment on, that revival broke out in Wales. That those teenagers who were sitting there around this little girl heard that declaration of her faith. And when she said, if nobody else will say it, I will. He's my savior. And I love him with all of my heart. And people in that room, they left from there, they followed Jesus, and they started taking the message of the gospel out to Wales. And revival broke out, not because a pastor preached a great message, not because there was an incredible worship service, but because a little girl stood up and said, if nobody else will, I'll say it. He's my Savior, and I love him with all my heart. Church, that's the declaration 
that we have to make. And so here's what I'm going to encourage you to do this morning. Will you make that declaration? Not to manipulate the situation, not to try to bring something out. I've been praying about this all week long, just going, God, I'm not trying to manufacture anything here. But for us, and Jesus said it, if you deny me in this generation, I'll deny you before my Father when he comes in his glory. If we can't in this room around Christians make the declaration, he's my Savior and I love him with all of my heart, where will we make that declaration? Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.